Hey, Lidge. Hey, Hamish. How are you, man? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's like it's mid-September, which may be uh, dating when we do the interview here, but um, it's still like blisteringly hot outside in Nashville. Yeah, I'm very glad to be in England sometimes. <laughs> it's, isn't it like cloudy and rainy every other day or something? And, um, don't you go around in a, with an umbrella, a black umbrella and a bowler hat? I think that's probably Scotland, but then people in Scotland probably say that's Iceland or something. Okay, know. all right, good enough. <laughs> um, so we were talking a little bit before that you've been in court recently. What Can you tell a story a little bit about that and what you've been fighting for? Because it's kind of interesting recording thing. Sure, yeah. So um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, Nashville, the city, is in a county called Davidson, Davidson County. And there have been a long history of home studios happening in Nashville going all the way back to the 1950s. But of course, um, you know, a big resurgence, uh, maybe not resurgence, but a, but a big introduction of home studios in starting in the 1990s with the introduction of things like ADATs and then Pro Tools and then computer recording, um, you know, all the way to, 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 to today where we have what's familiar to all of us this concept of like the home studio. You just have a computer and an interface and some mics and you're ready to start going to work. Um, but, you know, in Nashville, there's probably, you know, a couple of thousand home studios that are actually working and making records with people and, you know, having uh, an artist come over and record vocals and guitar and, and um, maybe a band or whatever and making professional records and have been for a long time. But it turns out that Davidson County actually has a, a city zoning ordinance that says if you're in a residence and you're in a home studio, that you're technically not allowed to have a customer come over to your house. And, um, and I didn't even know that, you know, back when I bought my house, I've, I would just seen people have home studios and I thought that's, that looks great. That's what I want to do too. So, uh, fast forward to more recently, I bought my house back in 2000, but fast forward to more recently. And in 2015, um, four years ago, almost five years at this point, I got a cease and desist letter from the city of Nashville that said, Hey, um, you're operating your studio as a commercial recording studio and you're not allowed to do that. So we're going to shut you down. And, um, it was pretty scary at the time. And they threatened to do things like, um, do, you know, first they said, we're going to, you ready to do an inspection. I was like, what do you mean? They said, we'll, we'll come walk through and verify you've removed all recording equipment from the premises. And I was like, whoa, hold, hold the bus, dude. Um, what, what are you talking about? You know, this is my home. This is, I can't do that. Uh, and so they, they sort of backed off a little on that, but they said, listen, if we, um, get another complaint about you recording anybody other than yourself in your studio, in your home studio, then we'll immediately take you to court and file a warrant. So, uh, that shut down my ability to have my website and be promoting the studio and trying to invite artists to come work with me. And I had to, um, they also had me shut down my YouTube channel. I was doing a, I had done like a hundred videos over that year, um, with bands coming into the studio and performing and, um, doing something called stereo sessions, uh, which you could 
go check out if you want. It's called stereosessions.com. But we were just doing something that's familiar. You've seen it, you know, with lots of studios. It's a great way to sort of build the community, the music community around you and promote your studio. Um, so they had made me shut that down too. And um, then I spoke to the press about it uh, out of frustration and ended up having an article in the local paper, um, front page article in the Tennessean. And then shortly after that, a couple of um, nonprofit legal firms reached out to me and they said, hey, we think what you're going through is bullshit. Oh, can I, I didn't ask you about my language. <laughs> Go for it, it's fine. Okay, good. We think what you're going through is BS and um, we want to represent you with your case. And so I talked to both of them and we decided to all team up together. And then more recently in uh, 2017, we actually tried to apply for a rezoning. Um, and then that, that almost made it through the city council, um, but it got voted down 20 to 14. So I was unable to just simply legally rezone it, my, my property to allow me to live here and have a home studio. <clears throat> so we decided to just, the next step was to file a lawsuit. So in December of 2017, we filed a lawsuit. And I actually have a co-plaintiff co in the case. Um, is a woman who, uh, because remember, Nashville doesn't allow this across all home businesses. So like if you're a little old lady who wants to teach piano to kids in the neighborhood, not legal. If you want to, uh, you know, make essential oils and have people come over to your living room and, and show them your product and sell it, not allowed. Um, if you want to build websites for people and have them come over to your website, to your studio and look at the website and work on it, or, you know, you're, you're taking wedding photographs and they're going to come over and you're just going to, you know, pick and edit the best photographs. None of that's legal in Nashville, which is ridiculous. But my co-plaintiff is a woman who's a retired hairdresser, and she just simply wanted to, report, um, to support herself in her retirement, continuing to do hair for the same clients she'd been working with her whole life. And so we filed a lawsuit against the city um, demonstrating, uh, arguing that, that the city was actually infringing on our constitutional rights under the Tennessee Constitution to be allowed to make an honest living um, working from our own homes, you know, pri in privacy without bothering anybody. And um, that actually came to a more recent court hearing just this past week where uh, uh, we were able to present our whole argument, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, plaintiff side and also the defense side both presented to the judge for something called a summary judgment, which means that uh, if all the facts are sort of indisputable and there's no need for an actual trial, then the judge should just be able to make a summary judgment based on all the, the evidence and the facts. Um, so that's what, that's what happened last week is we actually went in front of the judge for a summary judgment hearing, and now we wait patiently while the judge makes her decision over the next 30 days. Are you optimistic about the decision? I'm very optimistic about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the court case is incredibly strong. Um, when, if you read the memo, which is on public record, I can even share it with you, and you can put a link in the show notes if you want. Yeah, sure. But it's uh, my legal team has done an incredible job of presenting this argument. I was really blown away by it. Um, and it just 
breaks down the issue into the core arguments that the city, Metro, here in Nashville makes for the reasons why it disallows home businesses, you know, and, and home studios to exist as, as a place of work where you have a customer come over. And then, um, and then they one by one refute every single one of those points and point out all the ways in which the city already allows all these things. So that's, that's a big part of the argument is, uh, remember the limitation on this is that you can't have a customer come over to your home residence to record them in a home studio. And so, you know, the, my legal team put together this argument and they, they point out all these, um, precedential cases that have already been approved here in Tennessee that allow for all these things to exist. And um, more recently, the really important ones to be aware of are um, things like uh, daycares, which already exist. In fact, there's one right across the, the alley slash street behind my studio, you know, that will allow people to bring over children up to 12 um, customers every single day and drop them off and take care of them. And of course, that's a good thing. I mean, we need daycare and, you know, keeping it in the neighborhood where it sort of keeps the neighbors close is a, a real positive aspect, which is the same for something like a recording studio. And then um, the other big one is uh, is the short-term rental um, uh, ordinance here in Nashville, which says that you're allowed to, using things like Airbnb or any of the other ones, you're allowed to rent a room in your house for one night, um, you know, or multiple nights. And of course, there's always been long-term rental. You could rent to tenants for a month, two months, six months, 12 months. Um, so, so residences have always been used for places of business as well. It's just that, you know, um, most home studios, you, you know, we, we live in our homes and we want to be able to use them as well to support ourselves. Unless there's anything else you wanted to say about it, I thought maybe we could move on to talk a bit about your podcast. Sure. Um, well, anyway, um, yeah, I'm very hopeful and, and should know more within the next month. Great. So your podcast is actually one of the podcasts that inspired me to start my own. So I think it'll be interesting to hear a little bit about kind of how you got started and what what drove you to start interviewing producers and engineers. Sure. Well, ironically, I started my podcast right at the same time as I got shut down by the city for my studio. Um, and that just sort of happened to time out that way. But I had been a big fan of listening to podcasts. I was kind of blown away. I remember the first time I ever discovered things like iTunes U, where you could just go listen to a lecture on some topic that you were interested in, and then started listening to uh, discovering and listening to podcasts actually about business. I mean, like for me at the time I was running my studio and I wanted to learn more about how to operate as a, as a business successfully. And so I, you know, started absorbing all this information in, in the podcast world. And one of the messages I got, which was, you know, pertinent to actually creating an online business was the idea that you can actually take what you really love to do and create a podcast or create a channel on YouTube um, or any of these kind of content creation areas around that and build and grow, um, you know, kind of a new or a second additional business using that, which is, of course, exactly what you're doing, Hamish, with um, Somewhere Sound. You know, it's a great way to, to 
um, create something that that can you know have a, a larger reach out into the world through the internet that's directly connected to what you do and and love to do making records. So I decided that I really wanted to do that. And, um, I, you know, I realized that I already knew a lot of great people in the industry and it would be a lot of fun to do interviews. And I had always enjoyed doing interviews. In fact, I had, you know, even traveled around when I was younger doing field recording and recording, um, spoken word and poetry and, and people's stories and music and stuff like that. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And then I just realized I kind of put all the the dots together and I was like, oh, I should create a podcast where I interview other producers and engineers and we get to talk about all the stuff we love talking about in the studio anyway, um, but really do it with the mission of helping everybody out with making their own records, you know, in the same way that I'd sort of been locally doing that here at the studio by bringing in interns and enjoying going through the teaching process. Um, so I launched the show in 2015 and with a few interviews ready to go. And I've been doing a weekly podcast ever since. And now we're, I think, over 225 episodes recorded or something like that. Um, some of them are still coming out you know, around the time that this interview may be out. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. And we're about to cross a million downloads for the show and you know, our you know, around 30, you know, 25 growing up to 30,000 downloads every single month. So it's, a, it's, it's really amazing to see the whole growth of the thing and to realize that, you know, when you decide you want to start something, if you have a vision for it and you just do it and you follow through on it, it's probably going to work. What's the growth been like over time? Did it kind of start off quite strong or was it a big kind of upward curve or the certain guests that kind of boosted your general popularity? Well, there have definitely been certain guests that have boosted uh, popularity and gotten a lot more downloads and listens than others. Um, and I find that that often correlates with the people who are guests who, who also are very well known on the internet. So, you know, you, if I have somebody on who is, um, you know, has, has real fame in terms of, you know, the great records they've done in stories, but maybe doesn't have much of a web presence, then it, it doesn't translate in the same way as somebody who's already very active on the internet and gets a lot of views. You know, if you have a Vance Powell on the show or Andrew Sheps or even Steve Albini, uh, you know, who's a, a self-described podcast whore, <laughs> you know, he's, he just loves to share all his knowledge and talk about making records, which is great for all of us, you know. Um, but those ones definitely uh, create a spike in the shows. And, um, you know, but when I launched the show, I had been kind of doing my homework about how to launch a podcast. And one of the key um, goals for me at the very beginning was to launch the show so that on iTunes – in the first week, there's a um, basically like a, a podcast finding, um, you know, on, on iTunes. There's something called New and Noteworthy, where when you go look there, it'll show you. It'll, it'll basically bring the newest podcasts to the front, and so like, hey, meet meet all the newcomers, just to give you a chance to get noticed. And um, when I launched the show, I was really careful to make sure that I was getting enough 
reviews on the show and I was doing all the right stuff um, for rising in the ranks there. And I was able to hit number one in all three of my podcast categories during those first eight weeks. So that was a lot. That really helped, you know, and that was like, I remember jumping up and down and high-fiving my daughter one night because, you know, I'd hit this milestone. And then immediately after that, it completely just dropped right off the map. As soon as the eight weeks were over, my all my all my downloads and listens just went, and they just plummeted like Bitcoin. <laughs> and then for a long time, they just kind of slowly worked their way up. Um, so then, you know, that's kind of the nature of it. You know, sometimes with with uh, creating something new like that, whether it's a channel or even a business, you know, you got to just keep consistent and it'll slowly grow. And then at some point you see, you can, if you're lucky, you see something called a hockey stick growth, which means the line just kind of all of a sudden takes off and starts going up and you're like, Whoa, this is great. Um, so yeah, I can keep going on that, but, uh, but, but that pretty much answers the question of starting it. You definitely did more homework than I did. Um, okay, good. <laughs> were there any kind of guests at the start who were your like dream guests? Like I had three guests who I really wanted to get and really want to get as a kind of goal at the very start. Did you have any particular ones in mind? Well, I still have one, which is Rick Rubin. Right. But I've heard that he just doesn't do interviews. So I think I'm going to have to meet him at the meditation center one day or <laughs> something like that and ask him in person. Um but, you know, having Steve Albini on was, was a big, uh, that was a big, exciting guest for me at the time. And I already knew him, so I felt confident about asking him. But I really, for me, I felt like I wanted to wait until I knew what I was doing before I asked him. Um, and that's an interesting topic, too, because, you know, here, here you are, Hamish, and you, you started your podcast in, like, one of the things that's truly amazing about what you do is you just, you're like the opposite where you're like, nobody needs to know anything. I'm just going to go straight for the, the very best guests and bring them on. Um, and you've had an incredible list of guests on your podcast. And I know you got an incredible list coming up too. So congrats on that, man. Thank you. It definitely was by accident. I don't know about all that. Well, yeah, I was going to say Steve Albini was one of my um, like dream guest as well and he was actually the very first person to say yes to the podcast so I think without him um, it would not have gone nearly as well well you know bringing Andrew Sheps on the show was really exciting for me too he just gave such a great interview and it was so jam-packed with knowledge and you know so many tips and so much advice about the studio and then Vance Powell too, you know, when he came back on the show particularly and we just focused on mixing, it was just like, you know, uh, let's put it this way. When you're listening, you better have a notepad ready right? and you better, you better know where the pause button is and take a lot of notes because it's that much information. Yeah. With, with my interview with Vance, I just, I just watched a video that he'd done with um, sound on sound. So I literally had about, 15 questions just about that video so that's basically all yeah, we was talked that about the, <laughs> was that the mixing um where he really breaks down the way he mics the drums and all that kind of stuff um it was about recording a band in like in one room yeah. i think it's what it's called yep and i had a, a lot of questions about his techniques in that video so we actually talked about that for nearly the whole interview yeah it's pretty fun and yeah i started using those techniques too on, on my next session so one of the tricks i picked up from him was like 
sticking a crunchy mic in with the drums and compressing the crap out of it and even distorting it a little bit. Um, and then even running that through like a delay and blending that in with the drums to get kind of like a Zeppelin, uh, you know, effect. And so that, that sort of led me down the path of going like, well, if that sounded good, well, let me try some more, you know? So then now I've got a couple of new favorite mics I like to include on each drum miking. One of which is the, um, Dr. Alien Smith Dirt Mic 01, which has built-in distortion in a bullet mic. And I'll stick that right above the kick and, and by the snare shell. And then I could run that through like a delay. I've got a um, Echoplex tape delay. And also I'll kind of run it through that and blend that in with the drums. And then the other is um, what we call the butt mic. And we just took a bunch of dynamics and put them down on the floor underneath the uh, the drum stool and then surprisingly, the one that we like the most is the same one you're using right now, which is the SM58, the Shure um, vintage SM58. And um, and then I'll run that through my rack mount Sans amp, and we'll, and then you can kind of dial in the frequencies and the you know the bigness of the drums where you want it to blend with the rest of it. And just doing stuff like that is so much fun. How well do you generally remember what you talk about in the interviews? Because I find that when I go back and edit it, it's like listening to it all for the first time because I'm just like completely goes over my head when I'm actually doing it. Yeah, me too, big time. I mean, because when you're a host on an interview, you're trying to be very focused and engaged, but at the same time, it's like you're like you're the you're the pilot flying the plane. You're like you know the uh, the hostess uh, giving out all the drinks and the and the snacks at the same time. You're also the baggage claim, making sure everything gets there. Um, so, you, you know, you've got all these questions in front of you and you're thinking about, you're looking at the timer, you're hoping in the, that the recorder doesn't drop out of record um, and all that stuff's really distracting. And then for me, it's it's actually not until I actually go back and listen to the finished episode when I'm driving in the car that it all just hits me. Have there been things that you've learned in interviews that you kind of, you were saying that thing with um, Vance, those mics, have there been anything else that's really stuck with you and you kind of use in a lot of sessions um yeah definitely mike and the drums was a big one from vance he also talked about um, doing a special miking on the guitar amp that was like four different mics um so he was miking an amp and i think it was like a princeton reverb something like that and he put a uh, u67 and a 57 on one side of the cone and then on the other side of the cone these are both on the edges of the cone the other side was like a um a Royer ribbon and an RCA BK5 and afterwards I was like shit I got all those mics <laughs> I need to try that I guess I could have just stopped it I've got all those mics that's enough to celebrate right there yeah but the um but actually having them and realizing I was getting ready to record my record and I could try that on on recording my guitar. And so I ended up doing that and it sounds killer. It was it was pretty complex guitar miking. It was like four mics on the guitar. I I ran them all through my console. Then I uh, took the output of my console, ran that through a stereo compressor. Then I simultaneously took all those mics in mono and blended them through the 1176 and brought that up the middle. So I ended up with like a stereo track and a mono track for my guitar sound. Um, but it really did sound good. So that was kind of fun to do. 
And then, um, you know, some of the takeaways from Andrew Sheps, I don't remember whether I learned this on the podcast or whether I watched this in another video he did. Maybe it was on Pure Mix. Yeah, but it but it was um, using what's called the back box, bus back bus to mix with. Oh, and I'm pretty sure I saw a video that Graham Cochran did years ago where he you know came back from Nam and shared that with everybody. And it's such a great trick for mixing where you just take um, uh, different different approaches, but you take you basically don't include the drums in this. So the drums get their own sound, but then everything else, and maybe you do or don't include the vocals in it. I think I do include the vocals because I, I seem to remember that's what Andrew said to do. But you you take everything um, and you simultaneously run it through an additional bus, um, same mix, that, and then this bus gets goes through an 1176, and you could just, you know, Choose the plug-in choice that, that works for you. Um, and then you blend that back into the final mix. So you've got all your instruments and your vocals. They're all feeding the final mix, but they're also simultaneously feeding this back bus mix. And then you take the 1176 on that, and you get like maybe a couple dB of movement on the needle, something like that. Not Not too crazy, but enough to enough to be compressing and the the idea is that with a compressor you know when the vocals sing it kind of pushes the instruments back and when the vocal rests the instruments come forward again and you blend that into the mix and it just does an incredible effect of taking the entire mix that you've already been building and it just sort of takes one step closer that's the best way i could describe it (laughs) And then, then there was another one that came from um, Craig Alvin, which was one of my early guests on the show. And he had something that was called the like everything but the bass boss. And it was the same kind of concept. But it, I, I, think, I think, you know, he makes it mixed on a console a lot. I, I, don't, I think he's still mixing on a console. But one of the challenges, uh, even if you're mixing in the box, is that you have this kind of mix bus set up. And you know, you're, you're mixing and then you get to the louder section, you try and push it a little bit more, or you're like, crap, I can't hear the kick drum and the bass anymore. Um, I need to bring those up for this outro section. But when you try to bring those up, everything just starts collapsing and your sound and it gets mushy or whatever. And you're like, ah, so he, his trick was, um, take everything but the bass and route it to its own augs mix and the bass you, you kind of start out at the loudest section of the song and you get your drums and your bass to just sound awesome. Where you're like, that sounds great. I love that. Um, I hope I don't screw it up. And then you mix, 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 and inevitably you screw it up when you get to the, the big loud section. And then at that point, what you do is you take your everything but the bass fader and you pull it all the way down so that your bass sounds killer again, whatever, you know, bass and drums or bass and kick or whatever. And then you start raising up that um the everything but the bass fader again to just underneath where you were and it's like you've kind of restructured your whole mix so that now you know that the mix stuff makes sense but it's no longer you're you're not having to bring up the bass into the final output stage you know does that make sense yeah i think so all these techniques are far more than i usually do (laughs) Yeah, and these are for like, you know, 
mixes with lots of routing and you're trying all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, in my world that usually translates into, I'm doing a rock mix or something that's, you know, so, some big loud power band. Cause a big part of that is just the fact that we, you know, create records, uh, in multi-track stages with lots of overdubs. So we've already sort of like dissected all the music into these little bits and parts. And now we have to bring them all back together and there's no longer a natural room that all this sound is is you know getting brought back together in. So we're having to recreate that, um, and then you know we want to end up with a mix where there's like just the right amount of power happening in all these different section changes. And so that's why it becomes so much work. You just like you have to be very attentive to every single dynamic change and every single section change, such that. You know, you've reconstructed the just right amount of power for everything in that moment. Um, and, you know, it's one of the reasons also why if you can just record a band in a room playing together and get it to sound great like that, it takes a whole lot of work off your plate because they're going to make it sound great in the room and that's all you have to do is capture it. Yeah, well, that's definitely my general thing is recording bands live in the room. So that's maybe why I haven't had to delve into very complicated different mixing techniques like those yeah well you'll you'll save yourself a lot of time and you'll save your band a lot of money yeah i hope so <laughs> and uh, they'll keep coming back because they'll, they'll go off and write the next best record and come record it with you again while while we're still working on the first one yeah when they come back and say i'm i'm so glad that this was we didn't have to um do it track by track in a tiny little cupboard <laughs> is what they usually say but. yeah good good call what were some of the more difficult guests to think of questions for? Because I've certainly had guests, again, like kind of unexpectedly, like almost the most famous guests or the hardest to think of questions for because they've really been asked everything already. Have there been any in memory that have been the most difficult for you? Um, George Massenberg was challenging because uh, we had to do it sort of on a Sunday morning. So it was sort of like, you know, kind of challenging to just figure out when to do it. And then it was, it, it's surprising, like the more famous the guest, the more likely they are to show up with like the worst interview mic imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the other, other part of the irony is, you know, the better engineer they are and the more that likely they are to have, to know how to get an amazing recording of something, the less likely they are to have a simple USB mic around that you just plug into the computer and it talks to, you know, Skype or whatever tool you're using for recording an over-the-internet interview. So, um, you know, that, that's some of the stuff I found. But there was another twist to it, too. So, for example, when I first had Steve Albini onto the show, he showed up with, uh, you know, taking the interview in his office probably doors were wide open, phones were ringing and it was just through a computer and he was just using the built-in computer mic and the speaker on it and he didn't have headphones on. So it was by definition the worst possible tool you could use to, to conduct a Skype interview for reasons like it doesn't sound very good. Um, there's, you know, for him to hear me, it's my voice coming out of a little computer speaker um, it also causes more like crosstalk and and um, bleed in Skype the way it records it, or like it causes you to to talk over each other and interrupt each other. But 
because he was such a good guest and because he had such awesome things to say, it was still one of the most downloaded episodes that I had. So go figure. I found something similar with the, the best recording engineers have the worst interview mics. However, the one exception is Butch Rig. He used a U47 for the interview. And that's by far the most effort I've had someone put in. Right on. Yeah, I remember when I had Chris James on the show, he really went to, um, he sort of like doubled over backwards to try and get a really great sounding U87 um, set up in an ISO booth and everything like that. It was sort of funny. I mean, like, it almost was too much at first. And we, we finally arrived at just the just right sound. But it was like, you know, I've, I find that if you actually want to do, you know, good sound over the internet, yeah, either set up a great mic and go through an interface or just get like a USB mic and just plug it in. Cause a lot of times doing these kind of interviews, it has more to do with the fact of mic placement than it does, you know, just how fancy the mic is. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why my podcast isn't that kind of conversational or a lot of the episodes aren't is again, like you were saying, like I can't, it's very difficult to, talk quickly with someone else because it just ends up talking over each other so easily yeah indeed and then sometimes i have guests on and you just don't know what their you know their their sort of meter and style is um or tempo of of talking and some guests will just keep going and they'll um and they'll not really leave a space and they'll just keep going and you're trying to inject, interject something and I've gotten beat up, you know, completely on YouTube comments by listeners who's like this host needs to learn how to shut up, you know. Yeah. And it's funny cuz at first you see that and you're like, "Oh man, that really hurts my feelings." And then immediately you're like, "But it's really a good suggestion, so I'm going to I'm going to take time out to learn how to be a better interviewer and, and you know, not interrupt my guest if I can. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about how I use a handheld mic, and that's actually partly so I can do it through just put it down while they're talking, so I don't have any urge to to interrupt when I've, unless it's like a really clear gap. I think definitely if you listen to like the first interviews I was doing, I excited my I edit myself out, you know, when they're talking completely. But the first interviews, there's like a few interruptions, or kind of me trying to start a next question before I realized that you just literally can't. You right, can't, yeah, um, totally. You have to wait for a very clear gap to talk at all. P- please leave me a very clear gap. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the same with the band, you know. It's like, guys, leave me a very clear ending to the song before I press stop and record. We need to do like the walkie-talkie thing where they say over at the end of them. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, so, I mean, there's been challenges, various ones. I, I recently had a challenge that, oh boy, I had, I had, I've had. Um, this hasn't happened in a long time, but I had the technology that I used to record the interview failed, and I was just like, "Are you kidding me?" And it's, it's computer stuff, you know. It's like, it had worked flawlessly for years, and then all of a sudden, one day it just doesn't record. The, uh, both voices and you're like what happened you know so but I mean you know that's a little bit I mean we, we we really strive as engineers to be perfect and thorough and never ever not record or not capture the performance but but I do think sometimes you have to recognize that um, 
there's a statistic to it too. So like if you capture perfectly 99 performances and you don't capture one, you usually, all you can think about is the one you didn't capture. But do, do remember every once in a while that you did successfully capture 99 of them and that's worth something, you know? Yeah, and it's a learning experience for the future and how to make it not go wrong. So hopefully it'll go wrong even less times in future. Indeed. Make sure it's a learning experience so that you're improving. I get I get told quite a lot that I'm incredibly calm like during sessions. The one thing that really the only thing that really stresses me out during sessions is equipment failing. Because it's just Yeah. It kind of feels helpless and you just have to Yeah, it can be pretty excruciating. Helpless. Well helpless yeah. apart from restarting it four times and yeah, I mean, I've I've had so many of those in the studio. I mean, you know, if let's just let's be honest, if you're a Pro Tools user, you're used to it. Um, but like, there's just and and of course, you know, that may not be fair a hundred percent because other other apps give other people other challenges, and that's certainly the one that I've used in the studio for you know nearly thirty years now, and <clears throat> you know, there's just always something that will go wrong in the studio. So what I've learned is that um, it's less about, you know, blaming, you, know, you don't want to blame the tools, although you do want to when they deserve blaming and you do want to choose the right tools. But the real answer to not having failures in the studio isn't to not have failures. It's to know how to work around those failures yeah. so that the session itself doesn't fail. And like the biggest skill that you're going to have as an engineer or as a producer, you know, even musically is the workaround. It's like, how do you not let this obstacle be an obstacle? You just go around it and keep moving. I think one of the kind of best things about, or you know, kind of from a session point of view about recording becoming kind of so, like lots of people know a little bit about recording is that if something does go wrong, people quite often kind of understand it's not, they're not like, they can see when it's not your fault clearly. And it's, and they kind of feel sorry for you more than the fact that they like are annoyed that it takes them five more minutes to record their acoustic guitar take or something. Right. You mean it, like they, they would rather get, that you're getting it right. No, I just mean that like, um, like for, say for example, that, like your computer crashes or something like i guess people from my experience are generally like they don't especially younger people who have experience with like recording on computers is that they they know it's not your fault and they kind of feel sorry for you rather right. than want to have a go at you about it yeah i mean i've had clients where they look at the computer crashing as like you know like to like start questioning everything it's like you know is it broken? You're not going to charge me for this kind of thing. Right. And that stuff is really frustrating because it actually derails you. Like as an engineer, you're already so maxed out trying to get everything to function that when, um, you know, a client or the artist that you're working with is throwing, you know, more, you know, pulling the rug outness at you by, by sort of like casting you into doubt, that just really it makes it difficult for you to stay focused on solving the problem. 
Yeah, I'd say so. And I haven't had, luckily, I haven't had too many problems with that sort of thing. Because, I mean, I guess at least if you, it's very, it's, it was really helpful when the artist trusts you enough to know that you're doing your yeah. best, and your best isn't subpar. It's just you know, it's it's very it's helpful. It's just that it, you're trying to do a difficult thing together. Exactly, and I think the the together part of it is helpful. And like, this is something that we're working on together, and. So like it's a, it's a group process and it's not like a blaming people thing. It's a kind of help each other and feel sorry for each other thing. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there there are expectations that are reasonable yeah, to have around a recording session for sure. Um, but it's good to work with people that understand that like, you know, I mean, if you are like, uh, I don't know why I'm making pilot airplane references, but if, you know, let's say you were the, the rocket ship pilot that was going to take us on the first trip to mars you know be like i'd probably be pretty amazed that you got us there as opposed to like yo where was the ice in my in my mixed drink on this flight you know yeah exactly <laughs> but uh but you know as engineers we want to both get them there and get them back and serve them the best drink they ever had yeah of course i mean obviously if you go to a session and all the microphones are broken and nothing's working, then obviously that is on the engineer. And, you know, if you haven't had experience with them before, you can maybe say, okay, this wasn't a professional thing and we shouldn't have, you know, they didn't deserve us to pay for it. But, you know, if you've worked it, with that producer 20 times and it's been perfect, and then the one time all their stuff goes down, you know it's not the producer's, you know, lack of attention. It's the just unfortunate yeah, totally. And and like I said, stuff will happen. It does happen. Um, it's just about not letting it stop, derail the process. But the other thing is, you know, in my experience, um, and I think it's pretty consistent for most people I know, is the loudest um, complainers are the ones who also want the most for the cheapest rate. And so when you work with people that are like, you know, trying to trying to get you to cut your rates and give you the cheapest cheapest thing all the time uh they'll they'll knock it down they'll they'll ask for you know the the super um bargain basement rate for a session and then complain that that the mics didn't work you know not not realizing that that's what you get for the bargain bargain basement price you know so you know it's it's always just like a balancing act um but a good, you know, a good takeaway is just for us to remember that, you know, it's always good to set your sights high and work with people that are professional themselves because they're going to be the most understanding and the most appreciative of of the hard work that you're putting in. Yeah, I definitely agree with that cut price thing because cause I used to do, before I set up my kind of studio business properly, I used to just kind of mix people's home recordings and things like that, just like anonymously, like... Um, like people online setting the files over and they were always by far the most difficult like had the most problems with things had the most like problems with mixes and stuff like that compared to stuff now which i'm getting paid a lot more for but you know there's no there's not we're nowhere near these many problems with i mean i think it's partly because if, if it's stuff people have recorded at home themselves they expect you to make it sound like you know the beatles or something in reality you can't get someone's home recording to sound like the Beatles and then they blame you for that. Yeah, right. 
I blame myself for that already. <laughs> That's what we do as engineers, right? We just blame ourselves for like, no matter how good the work is we do, we blame ourselves for not doing better. Yeah, I'd say so. It's a complicated world. <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, I sort of have a take on that. I realize that that's a natural artistic perspective to have, and it is the very thing that drives us to be better artists and better, you know, craftsmen is because we always look at the last thing we did as not good enough. It yeah. gives us the motivation to try and improve it and improve it. And over time, of course, there's a huge difference between the first stuff we do and the more recent stuff and the last stuff we do. And then you get into the whole conversation, you know, that, that Ira Glass was f famous for his qu quote um, uh, with This American Life where he talks about, you know, it's, it's, it's the creation of a body of work where you really see the vast improvement um, from beginning to end. I think um, Steve Albini's actually been like the most helpful for me in terms of stuff like that because he's so because he's been doing it for so long he's so kind of firm-footed about what what should be expected and stuff like that like like he was saying with the Nirvana mixes like when they had to get someone else to mix it he all wanted him to remix it his view was I'm going to listen back to it if I feel like I've done the best job i can do um i'm not gonna do anything else to it and you can do what you want with it because you're the band but if i feel like i've done a bad job then be very happy to do more but if, if i feel like i've done my best then i stand by that and i think that's yeah been helpful for me especially when dealing with because i think every producer engineer comes up with people like that who like maybe they aren't happy with some element of it or they want to take it somewhere else and you kind of have to Obviously, it's kind of upsetting sometimes, but you kind of have to say, I trust myself and this is the best I can do. So do what you want with it. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, it helps, too, because at some point you have to send the mix to the band, you know? Yeah. And um, it, that is something that Andrew Shep shared on the podcast with me, which I can, which I can recount right now, is um, this idea that when you're about – you know, so you do the work on the mix, you get it to the place where you're like, this is the best I can do. And then you start writing an email to the band and you say, here's mix such and such. Um, you know, I did this thing to it. I got it to sound pretty good. I mean, you know, we, we could, um, I, I, I struggled with this or this thing happened or, you know, here's the things to maybe not, you know, that I didn't really get to yet. And then he said, and then he doesn't hit send on that email. Then he looks at it. He looks at his list of excuses that accompany the mix. And then he goes back and one by one, he just addresses each of those excuses until he's taken care of them. And then he sends the mix over. And I started you know, paying attention to that. And I was like, it's so true. Think about how many times... You're trying to take care of something, cross it off your to-do list, send it, you know, get it off your plate, send it away, and then you're making excuses for it. And then if you just pause in that moment and you think, okay, I know, I know I need to be done with this. I know I've got to move on to the next thing. But if I just went and dealt with each of these excuses right now, 
you know, and then go do it and then send it. It's like, I just made this a whole lot better. Yeah, I think that's actually been the most useful quote for me in all of doing this work. Because I think when I did your podcast, you asked me about my favorite recording quote or something. And I think I kind of said that in a slightly different way that, you know, the you shouldn't send a mix if you have to send it with excuses thing. It's been incredibly helpful for me. Like if you can't, you can't send a mix in an email with no text about it or whatever, then it's not ready. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that was a good takeaway for that. Um, I don't know, man, if I think of more, maybe I'll think of more, you know, lessons learned from guests on the show. There's certainly been a lot. Yeah. I remember you asked me about that. And again, I just couldn't remember. Oh, here's a good one. This is one of my favorites. This came from Jamie Tate and it was about miking up an electric guitar. Um, because obviously there are other instruments where you can, I mean, you can go out and listen to what the amp sounds like and decide that you think the guitar itself sounds good before you mic it. That's fine. Um, And then there are some instruments like an acoustic guitar where you can put on headphones and move the mic around until you like the sound of the acoustic in the headphones. And that seems pretty easy to do. Drums are a little trickier. You know, the drums are really loud and you move the mic around. You kind of have to have somebody else move the mic and see what it sounds like in the control room. But electric guitar was always, for me, a little bit like I I kind of understood that you could move the mic around and it would sound different in different spots. You could angle the mic. You could go forward and backward. And and that was helpful for me as far as dialing in the proximity effect. Like if if the mic was too close to the amp and it was too muddy, woofy sounding, I could back it off a little bit and it opened it up and, you know, kind of controlled the low end a little more. Um, but other than that, like this this concept that there are all these different places you can put the mic on the cone and each of them sound different, it, it's pretty overwhelming. I remember reading a article um, from um, – uh, um, oh, you might have to put in a marker here – from uh, uh, Mixer Man. Thank you. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Sorry. I just had to conjure up his name. From Mixer Man um, where he was talking about – Mike and a guitar amp and you've got to have an assistant out there. This is way back when he would, would kind of do his rants and writing. Um, and you got to have an assistant out there who's moving the mic every little increment, you know, a thousand times around the cone or something. And I was like, that's overwhelming. So Jamie had this great suggestion where he was like, here's the quick, simple tip for getting a great guitar sound. You just go out to the amp. Um, you make sure the amp's on so that it's, you know, bu- buzzing or hissing or humming or whatever. Unplug the guitar for a moment or have the guitar player promise not to play so that all you hear is the hiss coming out of the amp. And then it's safe to just put your ear up in the mic position and move around on the amp cone until you hear a spot where you're like, that sounds good to me. Like, I like the tone coming out right there. It seems like it's a nice balance of the highs and lows and whatever. And then just take your mic and, and, you know, or take your finger, hold it in that spot, back away and put the mic where your finger was. And that's a great starting place for a guitar sound. Guitar sound. So I started doing that. And sure enough, it's, I've just like nailed it every time. It's just, it always sounds good to me. And I'm like, that sounds great. You know, I might move it forward or back a little for proximity. Um, and if I really hate it, I might just move it somewhere else. But mostly... That just gives you the sound you're hoping to get. Great. 
as you're talking for, about that. For a close mic, for a close yeah, yeah. mic. Well, as you're talking about that, maybe we can get in some of my kind of usual gear questions. Um, Let's do it. What are some of your favorite electric guitar mics? Um, 57 is always a go-to mic. Um, I have an RCA 74 Junior that I like a lot. I've got a pair of them here. One's, one seems to have a deeper sound and the other one's thinner, so we call them fatty and skinny. So I use fatty along with the 57. I love that. Uh, when I did that guitar miking that I was describing with the U67 and a 57, and I don't have a Royer mic, but I have a B&O mic that has a Royer ribbon in it and a Royer transformer, so it's the closest thing I got. I'll put that up with the um, BK5, and that sounded really amazing. Um, and then... You know, I I like doing direct guitars sometimes, actually. Uh, actually, I just got in a thing I'm just checking out right now from IK Multimedia called the Axe.io, and it's just an interface that kind of has, um, uh, it's, I think it's called the Z-Tone section for impedance matching if you plug your guitar in, and then it uses their Amplitude 4 simulator. And um, that was sounding pretty cool in the headphones. I haven't used it on session yet, so I'll see if it becomes a favorite um, but I'm I'm sort of excited to experiment with that, uh, and then I want to start adopting a technique that is advice I've gotten from a number of guests, and um, you know I heard about Warren Hewitt using on his sessions too, where you automatically run a guitar through a DI on the way to the amp, so that you are capturing a raw DI sound and can kind of retreat that with a simulator later on, um, and then. I think that could be really useful when you're getting a great guitar amp sound, but you want to try using an amp sim to create more of a wider effect around that guitar or something unusual. Um, so yeah, those are. I don't know. That's probably more more than you needed for the answer. No, go. I'm happy to please ramble on about as many techniques you like. Uh, but I think for me, then I, I I put guitar amps in the ISO room a lot, and then the drums are in the the live room, which I call the gallery. I call the ISO room the phone booth. And that's all because Steve Albini has cool names for his right. his rooms. And I was like, I can't just call it the big room and the, the dead room and the small room. So, um, so I'm sort of more excited about getting the guitars out of that space. And um, the next territory I really want to explore is, you know, backing the mic away from the guitar amp and miking the guitar amp from not up in the grill, you know, up in its business. I want to, I want to back the mic away. And for that, I think, you know, like the, the 67 or, um, you know, more of a large diaphragm condenser could be, make a really good choice. Yeah, definitely. So obviously we've all seen photos like the Beatles recording like that. Whenever I've tried recording with a condensed microphone a few feet away, it just sounds like thin and kind of slightly off. So I'm, right. I definitely want to experiment with with that as well. Right, totally. Yeah, I have. I never had so much luck trying to back it away. Uh, I had more luck getting up close to the grill. So it either means I think it means just making sure you're you're recording the guitar in the right space, so you can you can back off a little bit. And then sometimes I'm really surprised. Sometimes I I find that the better choice for the guitar sound is the crappy one that I never would have recognized as being the right choice for the, the guitar sound in the final mix. You know, we just, we ought to sort of automatically want to choose 
um, the ultimate sound for each sound as we're about to record it. And that's not at all what you need. What you need is an ultimate mix. And the ultimate mix means that something needs to be in the foreground and something needs to be in the background and something needs to be in the low frequencies and something needs to be in the high frequencies. Um, and when you're trying to get the ultimate sound for each sound as you record it, it's the same thing as sort of soloing, mixing in solo mode. You end up with everything sounding like it's taking up all the space too much, you know? Yeah, definitely. And again, like, I think like everyone, it kind of blows my mind how little Steve Albini does to, does processing wise different stuff. And again, it's like he doesn't sit around and listen to everything in isolation. He just listens to everything together. And if there's a problem, he fixes it. But Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, Steve Janowick told me that that's how Al Schmidt works, too. Yeah, I think it's definitely it's definitely something to be said for um, not being Steely Dan in that way. Yeah, indeed. But being Steely Dan is cool, too. Yeah, I, I have interviewed several of Steely Dan's engineers, so I probably shouldn't say that. Hey, Steely Dan has long been a reference for a great sounding record and for good reason. And and sure enough, because of that, some people, you know, take the opposite stance. Um, but it really they really are great sounding records. Yeah, definitely. Good way to test out, you know, the sound of your monitors in your room too. But I you know, music is so vast and it's so based on taste and that's the beauty of it. I mean, we're not trying to make I don't know. What, what's a good quote here? We're not trying to make the correct music. We're just trying to make the music that we want to make. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think two two good examples and kind of opposite ends of the spectrum would be like Steely Dan and then Exile on Main Street. Like two incredible sounding albums, but potentially the most opposite yeah. in terms of attention to each sound and clarity and everything. Definitely. You know, and then the Beatles records, of course, sound so perfect and unique and they sound amazing. And then sometimes you listen to it and you're like, it's funny how your memory can play tricks on you, too, which is why it's so important to reference things. Our memory can conjure up an image uh, in our heads of what a great sound is and guide us down a complete, you know, garden path in the studio where we get lost, you know, trying to trying to get whatever we're working on to sound just right. And then you go reference the original again. You're like, oh man, it doesn't sound anything like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. I interviewed um, Ken Scott recently and he, I kind of, I couldn't pin him down about any particular techniques or anything. Cause he was saying just, it varies so much. And it was never like, this is how he did it. This is, you know, it was always, Yeah. I can't remember what we did because he changed it every single day. Yeah, that's why, you know, again, that takeaway of remembering that when those guys were recording the Beatles records, for example, or Exxon on Main Street or Steely Dan, they all probably thought it sucked when they finished and were like, you know, we'll get it right next time, you know. And I mean, not not necessarily overtly. I mean, they probably were pretty proud of what they did at the same time. But I wouldn't be surprised if they had that sense of like, I felt like I could have done better. Uh, because that's built into what we do, and that's what keeps us pursuing greatness and sound and art. And um, you know, it's ultimately it's that pursuit of sound that creates all these this variety of amazing sounding records. 
Like there is no right answer. There's only the pursuit of the right answer. That's all that matters. It's always amazing when kind of older engineers are still enthusiastic and still learning and still using new gear. Yeah. A lot of fun stuff out there. Plus there's so much more gear now than there ever was in the past. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's amazing to see someone like Al Schmidt using so many modern microphones and kind of such a varied range of stuff in terms of eras. Yeah, indeed. Well, and then he's doing all those big band recordings and orchestral stuff and just so much. There's probably a lot of opportunity to try a lot of things. Yeah, I'm sure. So we're moving on to bass. So favorite mics, physicians? Um, yeah, so bass, um, let's see. I I have a Avalon U5DI that I use for bass a lot. Um, it's, it's my only, you know, best DI in the studio. So that's the one I use. I would love to have like a, a red DI or some alternate tube ones. I just don't have those yet. Um, or Spectra 1964. I know they're making some incredible stuff for that. Um, so I find that, that getting a good DI sound on a bass is, is crucial for electric bass. I think it's very important because there's certainly a chance that that's the one you're going to be leaning on in the mix to get things right. So it's great to have a good starting point. Um, as far as an amp goes, you know, if you've got a great sounding bass amp, um, sort of like the guitar amps, a lot of times those can get stuck in ISO booths, which is maybe not the right place for it. Uh, because with low end, you really need to let it breathe. So you kind of need a big room for a bass amp to really speak and to be able to get the right sound coming out of the amp so that you can record it. Um, but a lot of times that room is sort of already spoken for by the drums and, you know, whatever else is going on. So if you can, you know, put your, put your big bass amp out in, in a big room so that it can open up and breathe, the low end can breathe. Um, and then I've, I've had great luck with, um, I've tried, you know, I've tried a lot of everything on bass, um, but a lot of times I'll, I'll reach for my um, RE, EV RE20 here. I kind of like the way that sounds on a bass amp. Um, sometimes I'll put up a 57 if that's the sound that I'm needing to add to the DI sound. Um, as far as DI goes, I also have a Marshall JMP1. It's a, a tube direct recording interface for guitar and bass, and that sounds great. That's a great way to sort of dial in the right distortion on a bass but still have the big focus and low end that, that's sometimes challenging to get out of an amp. Um, but I also recently had a lot of luck using my, um, my mic tech CV three tube mic. It's a large diaphragm condenser that really sounded great recording the bass amp. Um, and then of course the AKG 414, I've got one of the BULSs here and I love using that, adding that in with the 57 for either guitar or bass. It just seems to have a nice, it's like you get the condenser, you know, wide frequency range and bigness, but it doesn't quite have too much top end because a lot of times I don't like too much. It's safer to have a lot of top end on a bass mic than on a guitar amp mic um, where it can sound fizzy and sizzly and kind of, you know, you get too many bothersome frequencies. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, SM7 sometimes sounds cool on a bass amp. 
Um, but really it's like, it's more about the, the style of mic. I find like a large diaphragm tube mic. I think of those as having plenty of pillowy low end because you get sort of more harmonic content down there. So if that's the sound you're looking for, those can be good choices. Um, a solid state large diaphragm condenser can be a great choice if you want more of a transparent low end and, and high end and you really want to hear lots of upper clarity in what you're doing. Um, and then again, I might back that mic away from the amp and not have it sort of eating the grill of the, um, you know, when I record bass, it's like a 115 speaker cabinet. And then the dynamics are great for when you want to get up in the grill more and you're trying to get more sort of like scronkiness and rock and roll and more of that mid-range um, attitude out of a bass. But then you'll, of course, be presented with the challenge of is the phasing and timing of the DI to the mic on the amp, are those things sort of fighting each other? Or are they working together? And, and then you get into um, tools like, all right, so do we want to use a little labs IBP on the direct signal of the bass and sort of like dial that, um, that phase relationship back in time to match up with the mics? Or can we just use the uh, time adjuster plugin in Pro Tools, for example, and time delay the DI a little bit? And for me, if I'm going to do the time delay trick um, and try and delay it, I start by zooming into the waveforms in Pro Tools. I'll record just a little bit of bass and see if I can measure the delay, you know, the distance and samples between the DI happening and the mic happening, and, and then just delay the DI in time a little bit so that it's theoretically matched up now with the mic. Um, and then, you know, the, the amount of that would basically be a, a good rule of thumb is a, uh, a foot equals a microsecond of delay and um, or a millisecond, excuse me, a foot, one foot equals one millisecond of delay and one millisecond is going to be, you know, a thousandth of whatever your sample rate is. Right. So I guess if you're 44 one, that would be, what is that? 44 samples would be the delay time if your mic was a foot away from the amp. I guess that's a way to think of it. And if you're at 48, it'd be 48. And if you're at, you know, 96, it'd be 96 samples. What are some of your favorite compressors for bass? Because I found that varies a lot person by person. Um, I love the sound of the kind of the bigger tube compressors on bass um, when you're you're trying to get the warm finger bass, you know, sound. Uh, it, here in the studio, I'm looking at my um, Tegler Audio manufacturer of uh, the uh, Verytube recording channel, and that one's great for recording bass. I can plug it in direct or I can run the mic through it. Um, I also have, I mean, if you've got like, um, uh, uh, what's the one I'm thinking of? What's the what's the blue one from, is it from Sweden? I don't uh, have it here. Yeah, TubeTech, thanks. The TubeTech is the, the C1 or something like that. CL1B. Those... Yeah, the CL1B. I remember those being fantastic. I just don't get to use it very often. Also, to clarify um, for know. any angry listeners, it's from Denmark, not Sweden. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I knew it was from up up where the sun sometimes doesn't rise or doesn't set. Just don't want to uh, anger the Scandinavian yeah, listeners. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I love the Scandinavian listeners, so 
you guys are uh, have been wonderful fans of the podcast too. Um, but you know, another one would, of course would be an LA two A. That'd be a great choice for base. But I have a 1176 in here, and I really like that. If I'm going to put close mics on the bass, if I'm doing a rock bass, I'll put close mics on the speaker, uh, maybe blend them together through the console, and then in mono, run it through the 1176 and add that to my direct sound. Uh, maybe also, I kind of enjoy splitting out the bass so that I can really like dial in some different sounds. But you know, I might do... The direct through the Avalon um, U5 going straight to Pro Tools. I might also split that and go to the Marshall Jam P1 rack unit and dial in a cool bass sound there. I might also split the the direct and go to the um, the Sans Amp rack mount that I have and dial in a great sound there. And usually those are places where I'm looking for a little bit of fuzz, you know, and a little bit of sort of round upper bass sound and then i'll also go out to the amp and i'll multi-mic it and run it in through the console and hit the 1176 and get a really in your face sort of natural real rock bass tone and that's really good for you know putting a pick on the bass and recording that way maybe moving on to drums what have become some of your kind of favorite techniques go-to mics that sort of thing um, you know, I've been really stuck on the AKG D112 for kick, and I typically put that inside the drum, in, you know, inside the shell, so it's really getting a clear, punchy, controllable sound from, with the beater um, and, a, and a nice low end, a nice punchy low end. And then I'll put a large diaphragm out in front of the kick, and I may leave the front head resonating. I may, like, lean a little... I like I call it like grandma's couch pillow. I've still got the old couch cushions. Those are, don't throw those away. Those are gold in the studio. Couch cushions, old towels, and old sheets are great for drum recording. Keep them around the studio. But but you can like lean the pillow up against the head slightly to just sort of tighten and deaden the sound and the you know control the sustain of the kick if you want to. Um, and then, uh, you know, a go-to pair for the snare drum for me would be a, a Shure SM57 on top and bottom. And then sometimes I try other ones. I've got an Altec. Um, I Shoot, I don't even remember the model number. It's like an M20 or something like that. Um, although I think that's the tube lipstick mic that I have. Uh, sometimes I like that on top. Uh, whatever you put on the snare has got to be a mic that can really handle a lot of transient. Um, but... Sometimes the the condenser mics are great for snare too. Um, you can get amazing sounds. In fact, we were talking about um, Tone Lux before this, and the you know the old C Sony C thirty seven mics. That can be an incredible snare sound if you put that above the snare. Um, and you know I, I think it depends on how hard you're hitting it too. And sometimes I like to vary out the mic underneath the snare, and so it's not two fifty sevens, but Maybe it's a 57 on top and maybe it's something else underneath the snare. And then I'll try, usually it's some of my other dynamic mics. Like um, <clears throat> I have the EV RE16 and RE10 and I'll try those out. Or I'll try like, you know, you can try a 58 or one of the Sure Beta mics. I just like to experiment. I swap them out really quickly and see if one sort of leaps out at you. Because you, you often never know what to expect. But if you don't want to, you know, take up time doing that, then, you know, pair of 57s, you're going to be golden. 
Um, for the toms, I clip on dynamic mics most of the time. I have um, the Mic Tech clip on dynamic tom mics, and then I also have Lewitt clip on dynamic tom mics, tom mics, and those both sound great. And I, I go back and forth between those. And for my overheads, I've been using the Mic Tech CV3 tube large diaphragm condensers um, regularly because I love the way they sound on the drums. They consistently give me a great drum sound. Uh, and if I want to do something a little different, you know, the, the Coles 4038 is a fantastic choice for above the drums. If you want it mono or even in stereo, you can get more of like a, I don't know, crunchy, you know, this just ribbon gives you a different kind of thing. You know, it can take to compression really well. You can get a little bit more mid range out of your drums um, as you compress it. Um, not quite so much sizzly top end. So it can help control the cymbals. Um, and then small diaphragms in like an ORTF above the drums can be really cool to give you a little bit more of just cymbal and not try and capture the, the shells of the drums. So there's just so many variations. And then I've been using the, the uh, Roswell Pro Audio Mini K47s as a stereo pair above the loft looking down on the the drums below which is you know it's kind of a the the big the gallery space um the big room in the here in the studio is uh you know the big room is due down below but then there's a loft up above so that's where the room mics can go and those sound great too great maybe moving on to acoustic guitar what are some of your favorite mics techniques um, Mike Tech C5 is a great acoustic guitar mic. Um, I've loved using my U67, Neumann U67. It's a vintage one. Um, the Probably one of my favorite mics right now is the Roswell Pro Audio Delphos. Um, I love that one for acoustic guitars. It just has a gorgeous top end to it that's not too... Not too bright, not too sizzly. Um, also, these uh, Jay-Z Vintage Series microphones, the V67 and the V11, are awesome-sounding mics. And the and the the Black Hole, the BH1S, uh, just have a really, really great transient response for the top end so that you don't have to add an EQ you know, to it. You don't feel a need to char sort of brighten a mic at all. Um, they're just very crisp because the, the, the detail is already picked up, sort of not not lost. Um, and then sometimes just an SM57 is the great choice for an acoustic. And doing a two-mic uh, two trick is a really cool way. You can put two mics side by side pointed at, you know, wherever you want to point them on the guitar. Um, do a large diaphragm and a small diaphragm. So maybe like my MicTech C5 and the U67 together or the MicTech and, you know, the Roswell Delphos side by side, and then you can blend those two to choose which kind of guitar tone you want, depending on what part you're playing. So that's kind of a cool way to cover your basses too when you're recording the acoustic and have a little more of a choice at mix. Do you have kind of go-to positions for mics usually? Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of the 12th fret area is a pretty good go-to for acoustic. When I'm recording myself, I like to put the mic out there and then I just move around until I love the sound of it in my headphones. And that's what I go with. Um, and that can vary a little bit, but I remember, you know, way back when I was recording a record called home away for Will, Will Kimbrough 
and we were just struggling to figure out how to record the acoustics so that it would sit in the track just right. I ended up taking my Octava MK12 and I came over his right shoulder above the guitar pointing down. And that was like perfect. It was perfect. And he was doing this whole finger picking guitar thing and it had everything I wanted and none of the bad stuff. So, you know, the real takeaway is don't be afraid to try a lot of different things and move it around. And the easiest way to find that mic position, if you're just the engineer by yourself, um, is go out there with headphones, move the mic around into different spots until you hear something you love and then put it on a stand right there and just try everywhere you can think of. Don't, you know, um, and if you have an assistant moving it around, that's really helpful but then it's really hard to communicate about where you liked it the best. And so one solution to that possibly is actually set up an iPhone to record the video of him moving the mic in all the different spots and record that to a track at the same time. And then why not, you know, import that video into the session. If you can figure out how to line it up, uh, that may be a, may or may not be tricky to do. It's probably not too hard to do. And then, um, and then watch the video and, you know, when you hit that spot where you're like, Ooh, that was where it sounded the best, you know, then you have a picture of where the person was holding the mic. Great. So maybe moving on to vocal mics. Um, maybe you start with when someone is playing an acoustic guitar, do you have kind of standard vocal mics? Um, I do different things. If somebody's playing acoustic and singing, um, and I can get away with it. I'll, I'll love to have a, uh, a large diaphragm condenser on their voice. You know, the, the Neumann U67 sounds amazing. I have a Lewitt LCT 940 that can sound really amazing. Um, my Roswell Delphos is really one of my favorite vocal mics right now. In fact, that's I for my record, I did a shootout of 20 microphones in the studio because I could, you know. And I ended up choosing the Delphos as my go-to vocal mic for my record doing five song thing. Um, and then, you know, sometimes dynamics can be really cool. The great thing about a dynamic mic is it's going to do a better job of rejecting the other sounds that are going on. So if you, somebody's really banging on an acoustic guitar below an SM seven could be the perfect choice. Are the mics that you'd use for kind of overdubbed vocals or solo vocals pretty similar then? Yeah, they're similar. Uh, Go-to mics is probably a long list for me, um, but that that Roswell Delphos, the Roswell Colaris, is another choice. The uh, Mic Tech CV3, the Lewitt LCT 40, um, 940, um, my Neumann U67, the Mic Tech CV3 is a really good. Oh, maybe I already said that one. Yeah, um, the AKG. 414 BULS, that's a really good choice because of the darkness on top. Sometimes that um, lets a voice open up and not be harsh and sound strident. My U67 is a beautiful sounding mic, but on certain voices, when they start to push it, it I, I call it strident. It's just like the mid range is too aggressive, you know? And so um, a mic like the, the AKG 414 can solve that. Um, of course, all the dynamic mics, totally worth trying an SM58, an SM57, an SM7, um, or any of the other dynamics that I've got here, like the, the uh, RE16 and RE10. 
The um, Coles 4038 sometimes can be a good choice for a vocal mic, but it's got a huge proximity effect. So that's sort of more of a rare occasion, and you really have to get your, your gain structure dialed in just right and the mic sort of backed away, and but in the ideal spot. So, you know, there's a lot of choices, and you really have to experiment to see which one you like the best. I think the last kind of main instrument we haven't talked about is piano. Do you have favorite mic techniques for piano, upright or grand? Yeah, so I have a seven-foot Steinway from 1920 here, which means that I'm recording a lot of piano, um, and it's a beautiful instrument, so therefore it attracts people who want to record piano. And it's like the more that person wants to record that piano, probably the bigger the pressure is on me to get the just right piano sound for them. But stuff I've learned is that if you're trying to do a big wide open piano sound that is a featured instrument to accompany a voice or maybe a jazz thing, then you probably want to go, you know, try out your large diaphragm condenser mics, um, different ways to approach it. A pair of those inside, uh, sometimes I'll open the piano lid all the way up because I can actually, you could remove it if you know how to, you know, there's little clips that will let you remove it if you got enough people. Or in my space, I can actually lean it up, lean it uh, up and over, and then just lean it against the wall. So the piano is actually like wide open, makes it a little easier to get the mics there. And a pair of large diaphragm condensers above the hammers facing down will just give you more detail of the attack of the hammers on those notes. So if you're building a track where the piano needs to uh, the the hammer attack needs to come through the rest of the band you're you're recording with, then that could be a good choice. If you want something that sounds a little bit more natural and open, then a great technique I learned is um, take the two large diaphragm condensers, and you don't even have to you know this this the lid can just be open with the stick and in, in in the largest open full stick I think is what they call it, um, and then you just take one of those condensers and it's so let's say you're standing in the little cutaway of the of the piano and the pianist is over to your left um, you take one of the condensers with your left hand and you set it to where it's looking down kind of over the v in the metal harp there um, so it's basically seeing the soundboard just below the hammers in that uh, middle c upper you know, the mid-range section of the piano. And then the other mic can be looking either from the bottom of the low strings, looking up those strings. Um, and both mics are about the sim similar height. So it's not like one's lower and closer to the, the soundboard than the other. Um, it's just more position. But it could be looking up those strings, and that can sound really great. Or it can be more like the, the mic on your left. It's just sort of on the right looking over the soundboard toward the low strings and that'll give you more of a natural open sound um, and then a great trick i learned from live sound engineers for claire claire brothers sounds uh claire brothers uh live sound production they talked about a way to mic up a grand on a stage so you can get a really uh sort of focused in your face sound and they take a 57 and they put it in the third sound hole of a grand, and you just put it right in the sound hole. So it's like flush with the metal opening of the sound hole. 
and that gives you a cool sound. It's not hi-fi necessarily, but it it rejects a lot of other things, and it um, gives you you know a full frequency, just a full range of the whole piano, um, and that can sound awesome. So there's probably more than that, but those are those are some good starting ones, and I guess you know you might try some small diaphragm mics up around the hammers if you really don't want a full full piano sound but you just want to get the attack of the piano um, because it's those hammers that are going to make the the piano cut through a track if you've got guitars and bass and drums and vocals and organs and all kinds of stuff going on you generally fussy about mic preamps yeah i like to use the ones that we've got and that work right. <laughs> i mean so that's the thing Mike, uh, most of the time when you're in the studio, you're going to have limited options on mic pre's. So you're really just trying to use the right ones for the right job. Um, the mic pre's that are built into my mixing console here, it's a custom-built MCI board um, for the 1970s. And those mic pre's sound great. They sound particularly great on a 57 on a guitar amp. In fact, this is the same console that recorded Hotel California for the Eagles. So all those iconic classic Joe Walsh guitar riffs in Hotel California were all recorded through these mic pre's. And, um, and I, that sort of makes me feel good when I'm recording guitar. But I also have a Calrec uh, rack has got six mic pre's in it and those all have EQs. So they become the go-tos for, um, you know, my inside kick mic and my snare top mic where I know that I need to do a little bit of EQing when I actually record it. Uh, vocal mics, I rarely to never do any EQ on when I'm recording it. If it doesn't sound right, it means that I'm not, you know, either we're not positioning the mic right or it's not the right mic choice or the singer's you know voice isn't cutting through we need to change up things or the compression's not right um i if i'm eqing a voice it's usually more to go for at the recording stage it's usually more with the intent of trying to get an effect out of it than to try and correct for for it not sounding right you know what does your two bus normally look like well, um, I just finished mixing a record, a jazz album for David Rogers, and I've recently arrived at a two-bus setup that I really enjoy. Um, I'll probably put, and this is all mixing inside the box, but I'll probably route everything so that it goes first through, whoops, sorry about that, something fell off the table. Um, I'll probably route everything first so that it goes through a two-mix uh, first through an EQ, which could allow me to just carve off, you know, shave off 20 hertz, 30 hertz and below, whatever whatever I'm like afraid is coming through and messing with my, my final mix bus settings. Or maybe if I want to do a little bit of a smiley face EQ, I know some people really love using, um, you know, a pair of Poltex with a little bit of low end boost, a little bit of high end boost. Um I've been recently actually mixing through the Andrew Shep's Omnichannel as well and sort of doing a little bit of stereo bus compression with that um, and maybe a little bit of EQ. But but regardless of that, let's just say you start with some sort of EQ that lets you shave off the lows in your, in your final mix and keep things controlled. Um, I like to go through a tape plug-in if I can and at least check that out 
So a lot of times I'll use this, the Slate um, virtual tape uh, simulator. I, I actually forget what the what it's called right now, but um, you know it's the one. It's the Slate tape uh, thing. Yeah. And then I'll go from there through a compressor, and I'll, again the Slate uh, virtual compressor rack. Um, which, you know, I'll, I'll maybe experiment with some of the different ones. They've got the SSL style, they've got the Focusrite style, and then they've got the, um, the uh, Fairchild version, and I'll just try all of those and see, if, see which one seems best. Um, for me, the, the, the Fairchild, you know, the, the um, Fairchild emulator basically built into it, it adds more top end and more excitement, harmonic excitement. So if I'm wanting that added to my track, then I'll try, you know, I might use that one. But if I'm recording a rock thing, that's going to potentially be kind of uh, need to be careful about the high end. And we want to make sure it's, uh, you know, darker might be a little bit better then the SSL style is great for that. Um, and then what I what I do from there now is I split it. So I split that mix bus. That'll just be called mix bus. And then I route that to two more AUGs tracks. One of them is called cold mix and one of them is called hot mix. Cold mix um, will just go straight from there to um, output one and two. And then hot mix will go straight from hot mix to output three and four. And then that way I can flip between my two mix buttons on my, my volume knob and I can listen to the mix that doesn't have any added additional limiting gain after that. But the hot mix, it's like a free for all. I can do whatever I want. I can put, um, you know, two, three different limiter plugins on it and really try and boost that gain up and basically kind of emulate mastering and get it as hot as I think I'm going to want it to be to send it in a final email for a reference listen. Because if you send a mix out, you know, to yourself or to a client and it's quiet, but you try and go listen to it on your iPhone or in the car, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, just turn the volume up. But the truth is, in my experience, there's only so much turning up the volume you can do before it just sounds shitty. Like there, there really is a sweet spot for consumer gear, listen, playback. And so I like to try and make sure that I have, I'm printing a hot mix that allows me to hear it in that context. And, and a lot of times I'll actually mix, while I'm mixing, I'll listen to the hot mix. And, and what that does too is it gives you a chance to, you know, if your instinct is to make things sound exciting, it gives you a chance to make it exciting to yourself and you hear it. And you can, it's safe to run the risk of pushing your mix too hard because there's always this other one that doesn't have all that extra stuff added to it. And you can always use that one at mastering or you can just go back to that one and reboost it from there. And sure enough, when we went to master um, with Ryan Smith, that the mixes that he chose were my cold mixes and he rebuilt the master from that and it sounds fantastic, you know. So that's been a really helpful trick for me. And then I'm trying to think about where I put that. So then the the hot uh, the cold bus and the hot bus are the outputs are routed to two places. So the cold bus is routed to output one and two, but it's also routed uh, routed to output five and six in Pro Tools. The hot bus is routed to three and four, but it's also routed to 
7 and 8 of Pro Tools. That way when I actually go do the bounce, I can listen to 1 and 2 or 3 and 4 while I'm working, and I can even put on the Sonarworks Reference 4 uh, plugin to actually like accommodate for my speaker EQ and sort of make my listening experience uh, you know, hopefully more accurate. To what it's to what I need to, it to be, and so that it sounds good when I leave the studio. But when I go do the Pro Tools bounce, because I I'm in the habit of bouncing from Pro Tools, I don't do do the um, the print back into Pro Tools like some people do. Then when I do a bounce, I actually can just bounce five, six, seven, and eight, um, and select the MP3 option, and in a single offline bounce, I'm getting my cold print as a high res wave file, I'm getting my hot print as a high res high res wave file and I'm getting my MP3 version all at once. And, um, then I can just send the MP3 to myself for a listen in email. So hopefully that's not too much information all at once. That's great. That that's my more recent version. That's what I'm excited about. And then the one last thing that's so crucial is whether you're listening to your cold output or your hot output, uh, make sure you have some sort of a reference, option there that lets you check your reference against other things and uh, keep resetting your bearings. So I use the mastering your mix, uh, mastering the mix um, reference plugin. And that one has been uh, just a total lifesaver. It's so useful. It's so easy to flip between one mix and another uh, if I'm listening to some other hit song and I'm, that's my reference, or more realistically and more often, I'm just trying to listen to the last week's mix we did and make sure that these changes I'm doing now to improve it are actually improving over the last mix. So you can actually load in your previous mix and then hear the mix you're working on right now and with a flip of a button, flip between those two. And again, that can live on um, output stage one and two, and output stage three and four. But remember, I'm printing five, six, and seven and eight, so I'm not even at risk of going through that plugin when I actually print. Great. I think that's all my questions. So thanks a lot Good, for coming man, on the podcast. I saw my answers. <laughs> Great. Yeah, and um, anyone who isn't familiar, and I'm sure everyone is if they listen to recording podcasts, but Liz does a great podcast called Recording Studio Rockstars with basically yeah, all the same guests as me and a lot lot more and even Amish Amish is a guest coming and up guest yeah maybe out by the time this comes out but uh but I wanted to share a few things just for uh, places for your listeners to go check out if they're if they're interested in the yeah. stuff we talked about um the first topic was my home studio battle if you're curious at all about that please go to savehomestudios.com and I've got a website where I'm just kind of collecting all the links it's not very elegant right now but you can get the basic gist of it, and there's a lot of links you can click through to go read other articles that have been written about it and, and pick up on the story. Or you could also get yourself a T-shirt if you want because we made some fun T-shirts that say they just got like a, a fist and a microphone. They say Save Home Studios. And then if you're curious about my studio here in East Nashville, that is thetoyboxstudio.com. You can just click through there, um, learn more about this place, and then also um, – you can you click through that. There's a link for stereo sessions where you can go see some of those live uh, band performances. And then recordingstudiorockstars.com is where you go to listen to the podcast. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, man. It's great to hang out with you. And thanks for uh, hearing me out. It's probably one of your longer interviews. <laughs>